0: Well, as ever, it's a real joy to be with you as we uh, seek to see what God has for us this morning from Psalm 27. I ask you to bow in prayer with me once again. Great God and Heavenly Father, as we come to your most holy word now, we pray that you will open it to us, that you will speak to us, and that you will help us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a very famous uh, story of a Japanese soldier called Hiru Onada He didn't know the Second World War was over. And he spent 29 years in a jungle on a small island in the Philippines until 1974. He had orders from his superiors not to give up, not to surrender. And he was, was not convinced that the war was over. There were other men with him. One of those men left the jungle in 1950. The other two died there, uh, uh, some of them in skirmishes with local Filipino troops in the early 1970s. And people tried to reach them without success, but it was only when they flew in, his former commanding officer in 1974, that he he finally believed them. And he stepped out of the, the jungle after his orders were rescinded. Now, I could use that illustration in multiple different ways, but I simply want to make this point. Those men, and that man in particular, were unnecessarily living in fear all that time, in a battle that no longer existed. For them, you see, peace had come through his side losing the war. But peace nonetheless. But for us in the Christian life, Even though the skirmishes continue, the war has been won. Ultimate eternal peace, it's over. By living in the fear of God, we do not need to fear the devil and any of his schemes. He's a vanquished enemy. We are victorious in Christ because of Christ. And therefore, even though we have very real enemies today, we can live with fearless trust in God. I wonder then if I, should, if I was to ask you, should we fear anything? And I think there's a different response uh, for the believer and the non-believer. But as a believer, should you fear anything? And Scripture tells us, no and yes. Be patient, let me explain, because we need to define our terms carefully so that we understand what Psalm 27 is teaching us alongside the wider teaching of Scripture. This is a personal yet intense psalm. It's a comforting passage and it's a terrifying passage. We see from the heading immediately that it's written by David. We're not given much else by way of detail, no specific event, the, the many people try to guess the, the time and the period of life that David was going through, but there's no real way to know from the original language. And so what we find are general truths that apply across many different circumstances. Truths about God, truths about ourselves, because we serve the very same God that David did. Keep reminding yourself that as we see what this teaches, because God is unchanging since that time. Since this was inspired by the Holy Spirit and and what we find is that David finds himself under pressure, and he turns to consider God's attributes, his faithfulness, and expresses his fearless trust in him before, during, and after difficulty. In the light of those truths he 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 considers his opponents. He looks at at his enemies and he sees them as unworthy or worthless relative to who his God is. That's what we're going to consider and apply to our lives today, this morning. I want to break this up into four points if you are using the English Standard Version. They have the four different sections there with spaces in between them. It's interesting that Pastor And Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis calls this a paradoxical psalm. Why? Well, he sees the first part, the first half. The Christian life is often like that. We can know the truth. We can know how we should react. But then we can, but shouldn't, slip back into harmful ways of thinking. It's this tug of war that's been described. And when life deals things to us in God's providence, we can react in different ways and vacillate, even as believers. We can feel some insecurity. We can feel some fearfulness, some trembling again. We can go between confidence and cowardice. See, that's often the pattern of the Christian life. But you see, what we find here in Psalm 27 is not a question of David's salvation or your salvation. No, this this is the battle within the believer. That's settled. And so what I really want to show you today is believer how to set your feet on the healthy path of fearing God, and therefore not having to fear anything else. Look at the text with me. Consider our first of four points as we ask, how can we live that life of fearless trust in God? And this is the longest point by far, so I don't want you to get worried. Our first point is this, you need to be dwelling on God. Verses 1 through 3. Notice here as we we, we read that verse 1 looks at David's present relationship with God. The Lord is my light, present tense, and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Verse 2, you see the difference if you glance at the text here. It starts looking backwards at the past. When evildoers came to me. They stumbled and fell. Past tense. And then verse 3. Future tense. Though a host encamp against me. If that happens in the future. My heart will not fear. Though a war arise against me. In spite of this. I shall be confident. You see here David has past, present and future confidence. Because of his God. So in verse 1 we're told about this Lord. Yahweh. The personal, the covenant-keeping God. Not a God out there that's distant. But this first section shows God as personal. He says, my, twice. My God. And then he opens up some of what we know about God. And two metaphors jump out. He is light and he is defense. My light. My defense. We know what light is, don't we? It dispels darkness. It averts danger. It gives direction. It gives Gives help, it shows us where to go, it reveals reality, it uncovers our sin, and God is the source of that light. The source of wisdom in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is calls himself the light of the world. And Jesus in John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Second Corinthians 4:6. For God who said let, let, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Christ is the, the brightest, inextinguishable light source. He's the creator of light. But without God, you see, that's the contrast. It's, it's pitch darkness. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's distress, it's sorrow, it's confusion. And there's danger, but you can't see it. Every step you take is treacherous. And the point here is that you need the Lord to be your light, your salvation. But also, you need the Lord to be your defense. That second clause in verse 1, or the stronghold. And we see that in many different words, in different ways, and we can... Uh, find it as a place of safety in Scripture, of protection, of refuge. It's a stronghold. It's a fortress. That's the the picture. It's a protected, it's a a fortified place. The Lord looks after David. He keeps keeps him alive. He's the defense of my life. Multiple other places in Scripture that you can turn in, in the Proverbs and the Psalms, where you see strong towers and fortresses and shields, And Psalm 125, verse 2, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. Psalm 62 talks again of being my rock, my salvation, my stronghold. What's the application? I shall not be shaken because of who my stronghold is. He shields and protects us. He fights for us, as Exodus 14 tells us. He's the defense of my life. He's the deliverer. He's the rescuer in salvation. But now as a believer, he's our defender. You look again at verse 1. Both of those words or descriptions lead to two questions. Because he is my light and salvation. Because he is the stronghold or the defense of my life. Here are the questions. Whom shall I fear? And whom shall I dread? Whom shall I be afraid of? And that's where we need to pause and explain and consider exactly what the Bible means by that word fear. Because it's richer and deeper than you might think. So this is what I want you to grasp, you see. I want you to think about two types of fear. And that first is, is terror, being scared, being terrified when a, an enemy is there. And, and this is the type of fear an unforgiven unbeliever should definitely have if they are not right with God because there's nothing you should be more fearful of than the holiness and justice and wrath of God and the second though has been defined as as the fear of veneration honor respect or to revere somebody is to fear them it's in the presence of a superior Albert Martin in his book, uh, On the Fear of God, Where of All the God-fear is Gone, or the Forgotten Fear, says that that is the dominant fear in the believer, the reverence, the awe. But it's not exclusive. We, we should fear God in, in some senses, in a different sense, if we are sinning. He says it's a fear that leads us not to run from him, but to draw near to him through Jesus Christ and gladly submit to Him in faith, love, and obedience. You see, we shouldn't, now that we are Christ, now that we are Christians, we shouldn't now feel free to sin. That should still fill us with an element of fear, but now He's our Father. And we look to Him in love. So fear is essential in salvation to become a believer. But it's also still a part, in a different way, as our, as of our sanctification our growth in holiness, and in our killing of sin. It's true that we find the meanings overlapping in Scripture. You just need to look at a concordance and, and look through the passages that relate to fear, and sometimes it's hard to pull them apart. We know that God is an ever-watching, ever-seeing Uh, God, who sees even our thoughts and motivations. and, And as believers, we still live in what the theologians call in corum Deo, in the very face of God. And that should stop us when we are alone and tempted to sin. Even if you could get away with it in the world's eyes and nobody would ever know, you still know that your holy Father God is watching. That's a healthy fear that we should have. I wonder, though, does thinking about God himself instill in you that awe-inspiring, faith-instilling, worshipful fear in you too? It's important to grasp his, his majesty, his greatness, his holiness, that he is glorious and everlasting and wise and beautiful and powerful and just and righteous and sovereign and tender and loving, limitless. He's supreme. Above all other things? Do we grasp that? Do we study that? You know, often I've been told that people have different, spend too much time on secondary matters, not on important matters, but think about the end of the world and what will happen and how all that will line up. Actually, all of those questions will be answered five minutes after Jesus Christ comes again. it should be like, oh, you were right. Right, now into eternity. But we will never end plumbing the depths of the loveliness and greatness of Christ. And our almighty God. Let's study that now. So we need that fear of God. He's coordinating the clouds in the sky. He's regulating the temperature, the oxygen levels, and all the animals and plants. He's... He's maintaining your physical heart right now and so that it's pumping regularly all the way through the sermon. For multiple here the people here simultaneously and all over the world. He's he's maintaining all the different gauges so that this world becomes remains habitable. He's managing the Milky Way right now, a rather minor and local solar system. He's everything, he made everything, he controls everything. And that should drive you to your knees in adoration and praise. It should impact your affections and your actions because of who God is. You see, it's personal. David knows God. He sent his Son, made of flesh and blood like us, in weakness in his humanity. He sent him to a defined geographical area in his vast creation to pay the price of of the sin of His people. Why would He do that? Because it brings Him maximum glory, the confessions tell us. And therefore, we should rightly give Him that glory in reverential worship. Fear Him. It's not a negative thing, it's a beautiful thing. Fearing God rightly gives your life purpose and meaning. It's practical, it's active, it's ongoing. It's a way to live living in worshipful fear, walking in it, all to his glory. Richard Elaine, in his wonderful book, Heaven Opened, shows us how these two meanings of fear can be combined for the believer. He says, to fear God is to have the awe of God abiding upon the heart, to be under a sense of the majesty and glory of the Lord, shining forth in all his attributes, especially in his holiness and omniscience, that he knows everything. The glory of his holiness, and then he says, and the sense of such a holy eye upon the soul, strikes it with dread and consternation. Similarly, maybe you know John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He, Bunyan describes this conversation between hopeful and Christian. Listen, hopeful says this, how will you describe right fear? Christian says this true or right fear is discovered by three things. Number one, by its rise, it is caused by saving convictions for sin. Number two, it drives the soul to lay fast hold of Christ for salvation. And then number three, see now the person's saved. Number three, it begets and continues in the soul. A great reverence of God, of his word, of his ways, keeping it tender and making it afraid to turn from them to the right hand or to the left. To anything that may dishonor God, break its peace, grieve the spirit, or cause the enemy to speak reproachfully. We know that picture in Pilgrim's Progress. He finds the narrow gate, he gets rid of his burden But then he's told over and over again, stay on this path. You've got to live for God. So again, he has richness in multiple meanings, in our conviction of sin, in our salvation, but also in the way that we live, in our growth, in our holiness. John Brown said this, we are to fear him. That is, we are to cherish an awful, not not in an awful sense, a reverential sense of his infinite grandeur and excellence corresponding to the revelation he has made of these things in his word and in his works, inducing in us, here's the application, a conviction that his favor is the greatest of all blessings and his disapprobation, his disapproval, the greatest of all evils. We need to live for Him. We need to cherish Him. We need to cherish these truths. So we have those two questions. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? And to David, the answer is self-evident. And to any follower of God who understands this correctly. Because the Lord is the one in those positions. The answer is that I should not or do not need To dread or fear anyone at all. That's the logical present tense application today. And then he moves back in verse 2 and forwards in verse 3. Because God is who he is, I don't have to fear anybody else. He talks of those who come to get him. But because of God, they stumble and fall. And it's in the perfect tense. They will continue to stumble and fall. It's inevitable every time. And he gets assurance from this. It's not theoretical knowledge. No, God has proven and is proving and will continue to prove time and time again. You see how all these enemies fare against God in this psalm. And the answer is, not well. Every time. And David, therefore, is confident in God on that basis. These truths are rooted in the very person and nature of God. Verse 3. In this verse, he looks forward and he expects future problems. That should be our expectation as believers, too. Even if an enemy camps around me. Trying that time tested tactic of of cutting off supplies to demoralize the people into submission. Or even if war comes, look at the result. My heart will not fear. I'll be confident. Many other examples of this kind of fearless trust in God, regardless of who or what the enemy enemy is. Psalm 3, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Psalm 20, some boast in chariots, some in horses. Where is our boasting? Not in me, not in what we have, but in Christ, in God. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Psalm 46, too. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What's the application? He goes straight on, therefore we will not fear. Psalm 18, he, taught, he calls the Lord his strength, my rock, my fortress, in whom I take refuge, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold. And then he says, I am saved from my enemies. When he is your God, it does not matter who the enemy is. Or how many of them there are. You see the progression from verse 1 through 3. Look again. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's talking about a singular individual. To a vast host surrounding him in verse 3. It's irrelevant whether it's an individual or the whole world. Relatively speaking, compared to God, they are nothing. Digging back into church history. We find one of my favorite examples in the person of Athanasius in the very early church. And he experienced those around him trying to get him, to attack him, because he was standing for Christ and proclaiming the truth. And if you know your church history, you know that there is a famous Latin phrase associated with his ministry there in North Africa. Athanasius contra munda. Athanasius against the world but it didn't matter because this God was and is his God and this God is your God believer we're in a place where evil men men who are anti-God are are still around but he is your God believer doesn't matter how many of them there are so in one sense you see we don't have to fear because who is there to be afraid of but it's because we do fear God in that right sense that we don't have to fear man. It's William Greenhill, the Puritan, who said, when the fear of God is strong in your heart, then the fear of man ceases. William Gurnall rightly says, on the coffee cups in the cafe at my place of work, down by the airport, he says, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. One, cure, one fear cures another. So if you fear God biblically, you don't need to fear anything else. It doesn't matter what the danger is. By fearing God rightly, you will not fear man or Satan. Romans 8, of course, he asks if God is for you, who can be against you? No one can separate you from His love. But if you misunderstand this, you can become a prisoner to fear. It can hamstring you. You can be paralyzed by it, but it shouldn't be that way. Listen to the instructions given to God's people in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. So we firstly see in our longest point, dwelling on God. Knowing Him is the foundational part in David's life of fearless trust. You must first fear God and it will transform you from death to life, unbeliever to believer. And then you continue to live in that context in awe and wonder of your personal and and sacrificial God who is your light and salvation and the defense of your life, the stronghold, And then you will grow to become more like Christ, living as a fearful Christian, but fearful in God. Now look at our second point in this second section. When we consider still how can we live lives of fearless trust in God, verses 4 through 6, you need to be dwelling with God. With God. There have been many great military leaders like David, but you see, he has a bigger desire than any of them. Many have conquered much of the world, but don't have this most important of desires that we find in these verses here. Maybe you can think of all the people in the news today, uh, those who we might consider who have received everything that you could possibly receive, maybe a famous sportsman or a businessman like Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson or Elon Musk, they've conquered the world, so to speak. And we'll have earned more than all of us combined since this service started than we will in our lifetimes. But you see, they need this desire of David to be be living a truly victorious life. If they or anyone else does not have this desire, their life will ultimately be a tragic one. So don't don't miss this, this first part of verse 4, where David expresses this one thing One wish, one prime desire above all else, above worldly riches, above all acclaim, above any other treasure. This is the main request of the psalm. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To live in God's presence. To gaze upon all his beauty and perfection. To enjoy him. To delight in him. To rest in him. To rejoice in him. To continually desire him and long for him. To overflow because of what we know about him. Because of his faithfulness. Because of his attributes. Trusting in his protection. We have that account in Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses is in the cleft of the rock and the beauty and glory of of God, it, it passes by and he gets the slightest of glimpses. Where's Moses? He's on the ground. In awe and reverence and worship. When we understand God, when we dwell on him and in him, it leads us to worship. It leads us to want more, to dwell with Him. Psalm 37, delight yourselves in the Lord. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. You see, David's request, building on his confidence in God, is to seek the Lord, to continually dwell with Him, to behold His beauty, to delight to gaze continually, to examine, to consider, to scrutinize. You look here, where does he long to be? In the house of the Lord. Continually to meditate. You see, we can see also further on, he talks about his tabernacle or shelter. In verse 5. And actually that word for shelter in verse 5 that we find. Is, is used elsewhere in Psalm 10 and Jeremiah 25 as a, as a layer for a lion. Who's the lion? We're protected by him. That's the point. He's in the secret place. He's in, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. You see, it may be referring to either his desire to be specifically in God's house worshipping regularly, or more generally, Speaking of wanting to dwell all day, every day with God wherever he is. David dwells on God. He dwells with God and it results in fearless trust. He has an appetite, a hunger, a longing to have fellowship with God. He wants this all-consuming desire to, to intensify. It helps him. It reinforces his assurance, this communion with God, because that's where he's safe. That's where he is secure. He wants the closest possible fellowship, this side of heaven. He has an insatiable hunger and thirst and desire for intimacy with God. That's not just for heaven, you see. It's not just for pastors or the super spiritual people. (coughs) Of course not. It's for anyone who seeks it. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Thirsts for you, the living God. Our verse is quite a picture of protection. He's safe. He's hidden away. He's out of reach. He's high up on a rock. He's on a sure foundation, in a shelter, away from danger. He's saying the same thing in different ways, multiple times. He's safe, layer upon layer telling us he's safe with God. Psalm 34, verse 7 tells us, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. And so because he's safe, because he's beyond any kind of danger, he can say in verse 6 with with fearless trust, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tents sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody... To the Lord, I'll praise him. I've been lifted up. I'm away from all the problems going on down below in that sin-cursed world because you have been victorious over them. He will be kept by Yahweh and it therefore results, as it should for us, in joy, in thanks, in praise, in fearless trust in God. Here's our third point as we shift gears now. And see the psalmist David change the the tenor of what he's saying. He's expressed confidence in God. He's triumphant. He has dwelt on God. He seeks to dwell with God. But now he cries out with some distress. But you'll see still some trust. So our third point is this. You need to be determined to seek God. You need to be determined to seek God in verses 7 through 10. Commentators Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown here say that we have a transition from a triumphant confidence to a mournful supplication, descending in thought from heaven to earth. He vividly realizes his pressing dangers, what's happening today, and so cries to the Lord not to forsake him. He pleads with God in prayer. In verse 7, he's crying out for an answer. Then in verse 8, we see the command from God to seek His face. And that's where we need to ask in our present circumstances. Do we do that? Do we have that desire? Is that the first place we, we turn? You see, we live in a world, even a Christian world, of perfunctory prayer. If you understand who you're speaking to, Who has your attention when you, you pray you would not take it so lightly? God says, turn to me. Seek me. Be devoted to me completely. Live in my presence. It's not an ominous thing. It's a beautiful thing. We want to please God. It's not like living continually with a policeman in uniform, always ready with his little book, constantly on edge. You know how you change your driving when you... See him parked there in his blue car. No. To live in God's presence is a delight. You want to please him. You want his approval. You want to bring him glory in all that you do. You need to live with that mentality. Knowing that he watches on. That he is disposed towards you. That he loves his child. Notice how in Romans 3.18 that if you... Do not fear and seek God. It impacts how you live. The passage tells us there none non-righteous, no, not even one. And then it goes through a whole description of these people. And then it tells us why. There is, no, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why they live like that. They aren't seeking God. They aren't seeking His will, His smile, His favor, His fellowship. No, in contrast, you need complete devotion to God. Asking him, petitioning him, worshipping him, having full confidence in him, seeking the face of God in every situation to to focus on the faithfulness and, and goodness of God in every circumstance. Seek is a command here. It should be an insatiable craving, a continual action. But even here, When David is asking these questions and pleading, verse 9 shows us that he hasn't forgotten what God has done for him. He says, you have been my help. He knows that even if those closest to him step away, God won't. And to be in his presence is such a comfort, a guaranteed protection. Know God. Dwell with God. Seek God continually. Submit to Him in all things. Live for Him. Your life's objective is to live for Him. Nothing is more important than that. You lay your destiny at His feet in difficult circumstances. In His case, David's life is probably on the line again. And yet he can see the faithfulness of God and and rest in that. You're a living sacrifice for His cause. He's everything to you, surely. And when you surrender your all to God, Satan and his minions and followers have nothing on you. Dwell on God. Dwell with God. Seek God. And finally, in verses 11 through 14, you need to be determined to wait for God. To wait for God. This is the conclusion. Verse 11, he submissively Asks God for guidance, to be taught. He desires a level, a straight play in a path with no hindrances, no obstacles, no blockages. And he goes on to talk about his enemies and he does it triumphantly. He does conclude triumphantly in this song. Even in the midst of all this we see God's goodness without which he would have despaired. And also in this final section in verse 14 we see David encouraging others. Twice he says, Wait for the Lord. That's what he tells others who are reading this. What does that mean? Well, that word wait in the Hebrew has the sense of of being stretched, as you stretch out a rope. Also, it means to endure, to remain, or there's a picture when when we have this word wait often of threading like a spider threads its web. It's a, a long process. There is an element here of looking eagerly, that it's not just waiting endlessly. There's an end goal in mind. There's hope at the end of this waiting. It's active waiting, it's an active verb. That we hope in the Lord. We eagerly wait for Him, knowing that He cares, knowing that He is faithful. Showing patience, knowing that He is all-powerful, and all-knowing, and all-wise. I could turn you to so many places where we read of believers, God's people, waiting on God. It's a normal experience throughout Scripture, throughout the whole of church history. We hear echoes of our psalm in Psalm 25. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Active waiting. Not passive waiting, hosea twelve six wait for your God continually psalm thirty seven seven rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. again, similar exhortations found elsewhere psalm sixty two verse one, My soul waits in silence for God. from him is my salvation. He is my only rock and sal- salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Psalm 130 verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. Again, active, forward-looking. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. You see that that job role there? There's an anticipation that something is coming. The sun will rise. There's an eagerness, there's an attentiveness there in the word waiting. Waiting. Proverbs 20, verse 22, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will save you. Isaiah 40, in two different places, Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Psalm 40, lastly, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. See, do you have such a trust? Do you have... Such patience and faith, anticipating that God does everything in His timing, trusting Him with that, knowing that He is faithful, knowing that He is a good and personal God, knowing that whatever your trouble is, we don't know what it is in Psalm 27, but whatever it is for you, you can trust God and wait for Him, knowing that He has your ultimate good in mind. What should you do in your circumstances? Pray and then wait. Actively wait. Keep praying. Present tense. Don't go out and seek to do something in your own strength, which you've not been told to do. But we need to stand for him. Have confidence in God. His goodness is the antidote. He will strengthen you. says in verse 14, Be strong and let your heart take courage. And the sense there is to To act with vigor and confidence. Not because of your abilities, but because of God's abilities. And so we've considered how we can have fearless trust in God. And we've seen that we must dwell on God, we must dwell with God, we must seek God, and we must wait for God. It's too much to do the whole of Psalm 27 in one service. But it's the first time you've had me in three years, so I had to do everything in one attempt. But you see, this is the point. There is a way through all your difficulty with fearless trust in God. If you're overwhelmed, trust in God. Wait on God. Seek God. Hope in God. Understand who God is. Who the object of your faith is. That's where you must focus your confidence. And once you are anchored to the rock of ages, You have nothing to fear. He is light. He is salvation. He is stronghold. And so you can choose faith over fear. You need to know God more deeply. You need to seek His face like David. Seek true wisdom and knowledge. Delve eagerly and relentlessly into His Word. Learn about Him. That will buttress your faith. And deepen your trust. Because, my friend, you can trust God no matter what. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in today. Puritan Richard Baxter says, Let thy soul retain the deepest impression of the almightiness, wisdom, goodness, and faithfulness of God. And how certainly all persons, things, and events are in his power. And hear the contrast. And how impotent all the world is to resist him. And that nothing can hurt thee but by his consent. The principal means for a confirmed confidence in God is to know him. And to know that all things that we can fear are nothing. And can do nothing but by his command. And motion or permission. And then he gives an illustration. I am not afraid of a bird or a worm because I know it is too weak for me. And if I rightly apprehend how much all creatures are too weak for God and how sufficient God is to deliver me, his trust would quiet me. Oh, strive after that intimacy with God. David is not merely satisfied with with protection from his enemies. He wants God himself to dwell on him, to dwell with him, to worship him, to know him, to be taught his ways. He's waiting on him. He's hoping in him. And so this fearless trust in our day means you don't have to be fearful of the next big atheistic book to be released or the antagonistic teacher or professor at school or college or the abusive family member or the rogue government threatening the world with war or the forceful and mocking colleagues in the workplace, or the godless government officials who seek to restrict your liberties, or being the only one in the room standing for Christ, because you're not alone, as we've seen, or anyone who seeks to harm or persecute you for Christ's sake, all they can do is take your body and kill you, and then you will be with Christ, which is far better. Or anyone who seeks to harm or persecute you for Christ's sake, sake anyone or anything that has authority over you in some way or any worry or any anxiety why because whoever it is or whatever it is there is an infinitely higher authority your father god your infinite glorious limitless caring powerful loving father is yours believer you must know it and fiercely live in, fearlessly live in that knowledge. Act on this truth. It's practical. That anti-God person or institution may stand tall before you right now. And you must love your enemies and pray for them. But in some senses, surely you can think, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you know who my Father is? Do you know what a ridiculous and dangerous position you are in? Do you know the power of my God and Father? And you have the audacity to shake your puny fist in the face of the one that makes demons shake and tremble? He's my God. He is my Father. And Luke 12 verse 4 says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. George Swinnock tells us that the incomparable God must have incomparable trust. The more able and faithful any person is, the more firmly we must trust him. Now, God is incomparable in power, he hath an almighty arm incomparable in faithfulness. He cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. Therefore, God must have our surest love and firmest faith. We must esteem his words as good as deeds and rely on all his promises as if it were already performed. Acts 9, verse 31. As I close, is the account of Saul early in his ministry. He's under threat in Damascus. And then in Jerusalem, as he boldly proclaims the truth, he's trying to link up with the disciples, and they eventually send him to Tarsus to keep him safe. And then we have this wonderful pause, which I pray for this church. It says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. That's what the fear of the Lord does when rightly understood. So may you continue to increase. May you fear Him rightly. May you continually seek Him and trust Him and wait on Him. Oh, my friends, don't have a small vision of your God. My friend, choose faith, not fear. Single-mindedly pursue Christ. Find, strive after that confidence and courage. Have fearless trust in God. Let's pray. Father God, how we thank you for the truths of Scripture. How we thank you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you for the finished work in particular of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the tomb is empty. That it is finished. And because of him, our greatest enemy has been vanquished. And we do not have to fear. Lord, give us confidence in you. Help us, Lord, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. To trust you. To love you. To fear you. Lord, we cry out to you this morning for any who do not know you. That they would come to you repentant in faith with a healthy fear of a holy God. Lord, we pray that you will become their father and their savior this day. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Pastor Woolen uh, referenced Psalm 130, verse 5, which is the psalm that our song of response is based on this morning, and that encouragement for the active waiting and the hope that comes at the end of that waiting. Let's stand together as we respond. (laughs) Bye. Your families. Excuse me. For